good morning church our reading today is from the new testament book of acts chapter 5 from verse 1 to 16 hear the word of the lord Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Did it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young man came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. This is the word of the Lord. Samuel, thank you very much indeed. And... Um, 
Let me add my very warm welcome to Rory and Nicola and Nigel and Gail. It's lovely to have you with us this morning. Uh, some of you may have seen on social media yesterday that James and Jamie, uh, formerly of this family, uh, were married in Port Elizabeth yesterday, and it was lovely to see the, the photographs on social media. And do please remember them uh, in your prayers as they start their new life together. Good. Well, um, let's, um, let's keep our Bibles open at this passage. Does this belong to someone? Do you want to pray? Um, let's just keep our Bibles open at Acts chapter 5, and, um, and I will pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we know that your word is light for the path, food for our souls, strength for the weary, comfort and challenge. And we do pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would speak to us in a personal, helpful and special way. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. <clears throat> Well, I guess if we don't want to put people off coming to church, we should probably tear Acts chapter 5 out of our Bibles. Please don't do that, especially if you've got a church Bible. I'm not suggesting you do. But I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it, that this is not a seeker-sensitive passage. Uh, if we were planning a guest service, this is probably not the passage we would choose. Uh, it's the story, isn't it, of a couple in the early church who joined the queue of Christians who are giving money to the fellowship. Uh, their names are Ananias and Sapphira, and they pretend to bring all of the proceeds from the sale of a property they owned. But they actually keep some back for themselves, and uh, because of their dishonesty and their hypocrisy, they're struck down by God. It's shocking. It makes us feel rather uncomfortable. But there's absolutely no doubt about what happened. Uh, when Ananias rang Peter's doorbell, uh, he was perfectly healthy. A few minutes later, he was dead. And remember, please, that the author, the human author of the book of Acts was Luke, who was a doctor, and the particular word that he uses at the end of verse 5 is that Ananias expired. So one minute he was fit and healthy, and uh, the next moment he suddenly stopped breathing. I mean, just like that. So it's a very sobering story. And uh, instead of contributing to the happiness of the church, there is verse 5 great fear, and again verse 11, great fear. So imagine for just a moment um, a couple in our fellowship being dishonest about something. Uh, suddenly, without warning, they both keel over and die. And next Sunday when we gather together, we're, we're conscious that this couple, who were disobedient, but that's all, have been struck down. What would we be feeling? We'd be feeling great fear. 
And do notice in verse 13, no one else dared join them. Well, that's hardly surprising, is it? So I think a good way into this passage is to ask the question, is there something more important than making the church a happy place? I say that because our culture expects to be entertained 24-7. And yes, we do want people to come here and hear the good news. So we'd be extremely unwise to make the church unnecessarily gloomy. But is there something more important than making the church a happy place? While I was thinking about that, I imagined the testimony uh, of a member at this church. And I imagine they might say something like this. Uh, Well, I come along to St. Barnabas fairly regularly, but life is hard, and I'm the sort of person who gets easily discouraged. Some Sundays I can hardly bring myself to get out of bed and come to church and hear yet another battering challenge from the pulpit. Simon can go rather over the top sometimes. But the strange thing is that when I come to church, I find that I am once again face to face with the God of the Scriptures and the people of God in the fellowship. And again and again and again, I find that I am inwardly strengthened and renewed and refreshed and built up. And maybe there's someone who might say that this morning. In any event, I trust that as we we look at Acts chapter 5 together, that you will be strengthened and refreshed this morning. So two things, two things to notice. Number one, the early church of Jesus Christ. And number two, the holy church of Jesus Christ. So, first, the early church of Jesus Christ. Glance back with me for a moment, please, to the end of chapter 4 and verse 34. Chapter 4, verse 34. It says, There were no needy persons among them in the fellowship. For from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. Joseph, uh, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now come to chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, or actually literally in the original, but, but a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And I think from the conversation that follows, it's pretty clear that he pretended he was giving the entire proceeds of the sale. He was pretending to be like Barnabas. Somehow Peter knew about that. Uh, He questions Ananias about it. Ananias lies. And later Peter questions Sapphira about it. She also lies. They're both struck down 
by God. And the question is, why is Luke telling us this story? Let me suggest some reasons. First, we're being introduced to the real church, which is an imperfect church. Uh, we've been through the first four, actors, uh, four chapters of Acts, and so far we haven't been told about any sin in the church. And yet we know that there were at least 5,000 members. That means there were 5,000 forgiven sinners in the fellowship. They were forgiven, but they were still sinners. So there must have been lots of other sinful things going on that Luke could have told us about. But Luke has chosen this particular incident because it's deliberate and it's destructive of the fellowship and God deals with it in the most dramatic way. Interestingly, in verse 11 of chapter 5, we find the first use of the word church in the book of Acts. And uh, it seems that we're being introduced to the church, warts and all. Now, Luke is not wanting us to think that the early church was perfect, because it wasn't. I think most people out there, uh, if they think of the church at all, think that it's full of people who believe they're pretty good and they're coming to hear a preacher who's going to tell them to carry on being good. So people out there, many of them, think to themselves, well, I'm already pretty good and I don't need to be told to be good. But I'm sure you know that the, the real Christian knows that we're a group of people who are very aware of our sinfulness. So we're extremely grateful for Jesus and we're hoping that the preacher is going to tell us again that our hope is in Jesus and it's not in ourselves. So friends, Ananias and Sapphira are proof that the early church was imperfect. It's also telling us, isn't it, that there were unconverted people in the fellowship. Um, every congregation has some unconverted people uh, they usually, I think, the folks who come to church who aren't particularly bothered about the state of their soul, and it's possible that Ananias and Sapphira were not converted. So have you got the picture? In the early church, there were converted people and unconverted people sitting beside one another on Sunday morning, just like we have today. The second reason that Luke tells us this story is because it tells us how the devil works. The devil has got various different ways of working against the church. Uh, strategy A of the devil is persecution. And uh, we've already seen that back in chapter 4, right at the beginning, verses 3 and 4. And you may remember from that that strategy A of the devil is to attack the fellowship from outside. Must have frustrated the devil enormously to see that the persecution of the church actually led to the spread of the gospel. Because despite the persecution, the church just kept on preaching the word with great boldness and great success, which we saw last week. But here, in chapter 5, 
we have strategy B of the devil. And strategy B is to attack the fellowship from inside. And he does it by introducing hypocrisy into the fellowship. And of course, by introducing hypocrisy into the fellowship, the devil makes the church an unholy people. I think people today often get a little bit confused about hypocrisy, and I want to make sure that you are not. Hypocrisy, friends, is not being sinful. Sinfulness in the church is normal. It may be regrettable, but it's normal. And hypocrisy is not recognizing the gap between what we say and what we do. Actually, recognizing that gap is a very healthy sign because you can do something about it. Now, hypocrisy is pretense. Hypocrisy is where I present myself as if there isn't really a gap at all between what I say I believe and what I actually do. It's pretending that gap isn't there. It's sin that isn't acknowledged. And that's why in our Sunday services here we confess our sin. We don't pretend that it's not there. We admit it, and in humility we ask God to forgive us. And because of Jesus, we're confident that he will. So this strategy of introducing hypocrisy into the church is an excellent way of misrepresenting God, who is holy, of breaking the fellowship with deliberate conscious evil and of corroding the soul of people who are pretending things are better than they really are. So you see, that is why Acts chapter 5 is in our Bible. It's showing us strategy B of the devil. So from the very earliest days of the Christian church, the devil was trying to destroy it both by attacks from the outside and also by attack from the inside. And his purpose was to frustrate the word of God going out, to stop people being saved and to stop God from being honored. And so it's a wonderful encouragement to see how God overrules the devil's strategy in order to accomplish his purposes. The third reason this story is in our Bible is because it reminds us of the judgment of the last day. So if you cast your mind back to Acts chapter 3, you may remember there the miracle of the man being healed and restored. And we said at the time that the purpose of that miracle was to assure us that one day there is going to be a great restoration. And now here, we're being told that there is a judgment in the present, but it's a judgment that is pointing to the great judgment that will take place when Christ returns. So put those two things together. What is God able to do? He's able to restore broken people, and he's going to do that perfectly for all his people on the last day. 
And he's also able to judge and to punish. And again, he's going to do that perfectly and completely on the last day. So what is the world moving towards, whether it knows it or not? It's moving towards restoration, and it's also moving towards judgment. Uh, Maybe some of you will remember, a couple of years ago, we did a series here in the book of Joshua. And uh, you may remember from that series that when God's people were newly arrived in the Promised Land, there was a man called Achan. And uh, Achan embezzled things that he should have handed over, and both he and his entire family were violently struck down. It was a very serious warning to God's people. And now here in the New Testament, just when the church is newly established, there's another man who embezzles and who fakes his Christianity. And both he and his wife are violently struck down as a warning to God's people. So can you see that in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, there is a very serious warning to all the people of God, and it is, do not pretend with God. Then the fourth reason why this story is in our Bibles is because it shows us how God overrules the whole process. Uh, Because if if you know the book of Acts at all, you probably know that there's a little phrase that gets repeated all the way through that goes something like this. And the word of God continued to spread. And so you see here in chapter 5, we discover that although there is great fear in the church, it's actually a healthy fear. Because the believers are taking God very seriously. And uh, in verses 12 to 16, we find, don't we, that God blesses the church wonderfully as it deals with sin. Because God performs many miraculous signs and wonders. And in verse 14, he adds to the number. So, as God's people live God's way, there is tremendous blessing for God's people. So are you with me so far? Here are the four reasons why Luke tells us about Ananias and Sapphira. First, the church is imperfect. We need to be realistic about that. Second, it's the devil's strategy to attack the church from within. We need to be awake. Third, God's judgment is a reality. Ananias and Sapphira are a preview of God's judgment on the last day. And fourth, there is the overruling of God who continues to bless his people wonderfully when they take him seriously. So, let's move on now from the early church of Jesus Christ and think for a few moments about the holy church of Jesus Christ. In other words, the church that's been spreading throughout the world for the last 2,000 years and that's still growing today. And here in Africa, of course, we're extremely 
conscious of that, aren't we? Because as Professor White reminded us just a few weeks ago, by 2050, there are going to be more than one billion Christians on the continent of Africa, the greatest concentration of Christians anywhere on planet Earth, and therefore there are going to need to be lots and lots of new churches and new pastors adequately trained to look after them. So, what do all these new churches and what do we here at St. Barnabas need to learn from Acts chapter 5? Lesson number one. The church does not primarily exist for the comfort of its members. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I believe with all my heart that the gospel is the most comforting message in the world. Uh, To be able to say to someone who's conscious of their sin before God that there's a saviour who's borne the penalty of sin on the cross and is able to carry away all of your guilt, give you peace with God, give you an eternal future, that is a wonderfully comforting thing to be able to say to anybody. But you see, friends, Jesus does not call us to take up our pillows and follow him. He calls us to take up our cross. And I need to say this because, you see, in many churches there are people who seem to think that if we present God as a wonder worker, as our own personal genie in the bottle, as our servant who can quickly and easily make everything wonderful, that somehow that will win the world. But it's a false view of God, and it's a futile way of presenting God to the world. I mean, why is it that people think that if we present church as a fun place, that people are going to come here and get converted? Why do we think like that? I mean, when you go off to work in the morning... I'd be very surprised if anybody says to you, I hope you have a really fun time at work today. Uh, Yesterday, James and Jamie got married, as I said a moment ago, up in Port Elizabeth. And I doubt very much whether the minister conducting that service said to them, I do hope your marriage will all be fantastic fun. I hope he didn't say that. When the children go to school, our first concern is not that they would have a really fun time. We hope they do have some fun, but it's not the main reason that they go to, church, go to school. And in exactly the same way, God's design for the church is not all about giving people a fun time. And the reason that you and I get this wrong is because we've forgotten God's primary purpose for the people of God, which is that we should be his people. We are God's representatives. And before he is anything else, God is holy. And as his representatives, you and I are called to be holy. It's not easy. I think probably most people out there look at you and me and they think that our Christianity is essentially a private matter. It's sort of a hobby, rather like golf or bird watching. In other words, they think that Christianity is an option. 
But you see, Jesus Christ does not present himself to us as an option. He says, I am the bread of life, meaning I'm essential. I'm a necessity. You can't have life without me. Jesus doesn't present himself to us, friends, in optional terms. He presents himself to us in compulsory terms. So when people say to us, as they regularly do, that is just your opinion, what we actually need to say is, no, it's not my opinion, it's his opinion. That's what Jesus says about himself. And at the same time, we can also go on to say, I'm not a Christian because it's interesting, I'm not a Christian because it's comforting, I'm not a Christian because it's just a hobby, I'm a Christian because Jesus is the bread of life. The second thing that we need to learn from this passage is that the devil's strategy for hypocrisy in the church must be faced. I wonder if anybody who does come regularly to this church thinks, the church has got absolutely no right to meddle in my life. If that's you, if you think like that, I fear you've misunderstood the reason why the Lord Jesus called the church to be the church. Because the reason that Jesus Christ called the church to be the church is because it wants us to represent him. And he is the Lord of all of life. All of life. Not just one hour on Sunday morning. So when we become Christians, we surrender the right to be a private individual. We no longer say to God, keep out. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying for one moment that any of us, least of all me, are so God-like that we have the right to interfere unnecessarily in someone else's life. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that our fellowship has the responsibility to challenge the members of our fellowship about our consistency as Christian people. So I hope you'll challenge me about my consistency, and over the years some of you have, and I hope that you will be open to people challenging you about your consistency, and I know that some of you are. And when we are challenged about our consistency, the consistency of our Christian walk, we need to have the humility to listen, to repent of the things that need to be repented of, and make the changes that, need to, that, that might be necessary. But of course, if you want to be part of a church that is utterly superficial and leads you to carry on living a double life or a compromised life, you have not understood what Jesus expects from the church. And amongst other things, that means you will miss out on one of the greatest joys of being a Christian, which is to be able to look back on your life and to know for certain that God is at work in you. No, you're not perfect, and I'm certainly not perfect, but you're not what you were. God has changed you. He's making you more like Jesus. And when you can see that in yourself, 
Or someone comes along to you and says, do you know what? You have changed. I can see God has been at work in you. Well, you know, don't you, that you're on the right road that leads to eternal life. And that is one of the great joys of being a Christian. But if you say, well, Simon, um, I want God, but I don't want church. What you're actually saying is that you want God on your terms and not on his terms. And I have to tell you, that is not Christianity. It's a very serious thing to be a Christian. And God's plan for us is not a double life, but an integrated life. And God uses the fellowship of the church to do it. Another thing that we can learn from this passage about Ananias and Sapphira is that judgment is a very real and very wonderful part of our message. We're actually called to exercise judgment in the local church. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 5. But our message is that there will be a judgment on the last day. That's good news. You know, here in South Africa, we often hear people, don't we, crying out for justice. Very understandable, even if it's extremely hard to find here and probably in most other countries as well. But you see, the Ananias and Sapphira story is assuring us that a day is coming that will be a day of perfect justice. Justice will be done and it will be seen to be done. So isn't it interesting that when God judged Ananias and Sapphira in the way that he did, nobody in the early church was saying it was unjust. Does it say that in your Bible? It doesn't say it in mine. Yes, God dealt with them severely. It makes us uncomfortable. But no one complained about it. There was fear. But no one said that God had treated them unjustly. And when you and I have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus, we do need to make sure that we don't muffle the message of judgment. Because there is something more important than our happiness and our comfort. And it is that we take God seriously. And the last thing from the passage this morning is that God blesses his church when they deal with sin. You know, I wonder, I wonder what would happen to us as a church uh, if each one of us here this morning lived seriously before God. What would happen to St. Barnabas if every one of us went home today after the service and removed the kind of private compromise that affects our fellowship with him and our fellowship with one another. What would happen here? I imagine the spiritual temperature, uh, the interest in the Bible, the concern for the unbeliever, the love for God, the concern for one another, 
These things would improve dramatically, wouldn't they? If we would only deal with the sins in our lives that affect the whole fellowship. Because you see, private sins in private individuals affect us as a body. Mine affect you, yours affect me. And if we would deal with the sins that trap us and drag us down, what wonderful things might happen in this church fellowship. Well, the early church faced the sin. And we see in the verses that follow, uh, verses 12 to 16, that God richly blessed them. And in case you want to know why anybody would join a church that takes sin seriously, verse 14 provides the answer. Because in verse 14, we're told more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now, when people are casual or complacent about coming to church, why is that? Why do they only come once a month or half a dozen times a year? Well, for them, it's, it's purely a human activity. So they wake up on Sunday morning and they say to themselves, do I feel like it? Is there anything else in the diary today? No, there isn't. Okay, I'll go. So interesting, this week I, I heard about a church in the United States that has 11,000 members, 11,000 members. Average attendance on Sunday morning, 40 people. Now why is that? Well, it's because nearly all of them see church going as a purely human activity. But when going to church becomes a divine activity, when the Lord adds you to his people and you really do believe and you really do want fellowship with his people and you really do want to learn from God's word, well, you're there every week. You don't want to miss it. It's a very serious and a very wonderful thing to join the church. And so here in verse 14, the Lord added to their number. And you'll notice in verse 16 that their influence began to spread to the towns around Jerusalem. And they also began to discover the power and the joy of the Lord. So you and I have the wonderful privilege of belonging to Jesus. We have the great responsibility of becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus. And we also have the enormous honor of being used by Jesus. And may God help the people here this morning and everyone who hears this message to really belong to him, to really be holy, and then in his providence to be really useful. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this part of your word that shows us that while we are an imperfect church,
we have a wonderful Savior in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that as we think about the spiritual battle facing every believer, that we have a wonderful captain in the Lord Jesus. We thank you that as we consider the judgment to come, that we have a great deliverer in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that as we consider the mission before us and our weakness and our fearfulness, that we follow the great Lord of the harvest, the Lord Jesus. So we pray that you would help us to be faithful. And we pray that you would be honored in our fellowship and in our city. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.